This is Meredith for Real, the Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore taboo topics through nuanced conversations. They're the questions people think but don't ask out loud, and sometimes they're the questions people don't even think because of cultural hypnosis. Some things just get a pass, but here, it all gets talked about. The goal is to inspire curiosity in your real life. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. This week's episode reflects something that we've all said about ourselves in jest, but deep down we kind of worry about. It's hoarding. We think we're safe if we're not saving gum wrappers and toenail clippings, but my guest sheds light on what actually defines hoarding disorder, what brain scans are revealing, and the trauma myth that I found particularly surprising. If you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did solo sharing my own mental health hacks that work for me. That's episode 63. And lastly, if you've enjoyed a couple of episodes of the show, check to see if you're following the show on your podcast app. And if you're not, tap that little button so you never miss out on a new episode. All right, friends, keep it curious. The average American home is 2,700 square feet, not because so many people live there, but because so many people live with so much stuff. We move to larger spaces to make room for our things with little consideration given to minimize. We ask ourselves, what if I need it? What if my family needs it? What if I'll miss it? I have such great memories with that. I'll use this in the future. I'm a collector. I got a great deal on that. Plus, it's not hurting anyone. Or is it? My next guest is the founder and director of the Anxiety Disorder Center at the Institute of Living, the author of over 200 scientific journal articles, and even received the award for lifetime contribution to psychology from the Connecticut Psychological Association. But you may recognize him from the reality TV series Hoarders, The OCD Project, or My Shopping Addiction. Today, he's going to use his research, experience, and empathetic approach to explore the hoarder within us all as we ask the question, why is it so hard to throw away our stuff? Psychologist, researcher, and author, Dr. David Tolan. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. When I started reading your book, which I found incredibly helpful, by the way, but at the start of it, I thought, okay, yeah, hoarders... They're the other people, those people, you know, (laughs) and then I realized how many of the hoarding behaviors that hit pretty close to home. And so I wanted to kick this off with asking you, how common is hoarding disorder? Well, hoarding disorder is about two and a half percent of the population. Now, that might not sound like a very large number, but if you think two and a half percent of the U.S. population, that's about the population of the state of Virginia. So we're talking about a lot of people. But as you point out, there are very few true categories in behavioral health. It's not like there are some people who have depression and some people who don't have depression and some people who have anxiety and some people who don't and some people who have hoarding and some who don't. Rather, everything we deal with is on a continuum that goes from all the way down to very mild all the way up to very, very severe. Now, if you watch hoarders or some show like that, you'll see in hoarding disorder, the most severe cases, that's one end of the spectrum. But what we're not paying attention to is the vast majority of people who are somewhere on that hoarding spectrum, even though they may not quite get to that level of severity. Is hoarding a condition within itself, or is it considered a feature of other conditions like depression or OCD? 
it is a disorder in and of itself. And this is important to recognize, which is, you know, the, the most visible manifestation of hoarding is the clutter in the home. But you can't just point to clutter and say, aha, that person has hoarding disorder, because there's lots of ways that a person can get to a cluttered home. A person might be so depressed, for example, that they can't get up and move things around and clean up their house, but that's not hoarding disorder. In order for it to be hoarding disorder, it's not just that the house is cluttered, but that the person really can't let go of things. That the idea of throwing something away, even something, sometimes the idea of donating or selling something, feels so aversive to them. It feels painful that they avoid doing it altogether, and so they just, by default, hang on to everything, and it just piles up and up and up. What are some of the reasons that people fall into this these behaviors? What what are some of the drivers, if you will, that cause hoarding disorder? That's a great question. And if I had a really good answer, I would be <laughs> really doing well. But, you know, I, I think that it's probably like so many other things in behavioral health. It's probably multifaceted. We think there are probably some underlying vulnerability factors. Those don't necessarily give you hoarding disorder, but they make it more likely that hoarding disorder will develop. And that includes a genetic vulnerability. Now, again, genetics don't mean that you're doomed to have hoarding disorder. It just means that you have a brain that can more easily develop it. So we know that there are some genetic predispositions. We know that there are some cognitive predispositions. That is, when we talk to people with hoarding disorder and assess them, a lot of the time they're coming up with some kind of cognitive impairment, maybe akin to attention deficit disorder. We know that there are some personality vulnerability factors. Some people, for example, have a tendency to respond to things in a more emotional way than others do. None of those necessarily mean that you have hoarding, but they make it more likely that the hoarding will develop. Then take that person, filter those vulnerability factors through some life stressors, possibly traumatic, but not necessarily just stressful, and give them a tendency to overthink their possessions. Give them a tendency to overanalyze how important things are, to underappreciate how important it is to get rid of those things. Give them a tendency to be very dependent on the reward that comes from holding on to them, and there you're starting to develop hoarding disorder. So there's a lot of things that kind of have to come into play all at once for somebody to develop this condition. There's so many things, but at the same time, it's such a, I don't know, slippery slope. I, when I was reading this, I thought, wow, this could be any of us, which I'm kind of thankful for that response within myself because I, I see that in you. Um, when I've see, I've only watched a couple episodes of the show, but I, you seem very compassionate towards the people who are struggling with this and knowing what you know, that must help with the empathetic part of it. I, I think it helps. And I, and I think it partly helps to not other those people, but rather to recognize I could very easily be talking to a parent or a friend or myself, that all of us are on the spectrum somewhere. And it's just a question of where we lie. I mean, yes, the person that I'm talking to on the hoarders show is uh, has a far more advanced case of hoarding disorder than most do. Um, but I'm aware that the reasons that they got there are not that different from the reasons that lots of us get ourselves into jams. 
I want to come back to different reasons and motivators that people hoard in a second. But before I forget, you mentioned brain and genetics, and that got me thinking about ADHD and how some people go to a physician to get a brain scan to really get a diagnosis for ADHD. Is there anything similar for hoarding disorder? No, I, I, let me actually back you up. There's no brain scan that can diagnose ADHD either, just despite some people's claims to the contrary. The way to diagnose ADHD would specifically be through neuropsychological testing, which is a testing of the brain's capacity to, to function. So it would be tests of attention and tests of memory and tests of executive function. In the case of hoarding disorder, the diagnosis is primarily symptom-based. So you have to sit the person down and ask them some very pointed questions about not just the condition of their house, but how they feel about letting things go and how it feels to, to discard things. We're currently doing research now using brain scans, not to diagnose hoarding disorder, but to try to understand more about what's going on in hoarding disorder so we can see where might the brain be going awry, what, what might be going wrong in the person's brain that leads to the development of those symptoms of, of hoarding disorder. And what have you found so far? Well, what we found is, is a, a very unique kind of abnormality in the brain of people with versus without hoarding disorder. It seems, and this is only based on a couple of studies, so don't take this as gospel. Obviously, we need a lot more research. But what it seems like is that at rest, in its natural state, the brain of a person with hoarding disorder is not as engaged as the brain of a person without hoarding disorder. In particular, two regions of the brain, one called the anterior cingulate cortex, the other called the insula. Those two regions of the brain together sort of, we call it the salience network. It is the brain's, hey, wake up, there's something important here network. So if you just imagine part of what's going on is that if you have hoarding disorder and you're going throughout your day, your brain isn't doing that in the way that mo most other people's is. That may help us to understand why people with hoarding disorder often don't pay attention to their clutter, or they're not bothered by it, or they don't feel motivated to do something about it, where you and I might be. But then an interesting thing happens when you put an actual item in front of the person and say, could you make a decision about whether to keep this or throw it away? That same salience, hey, wake up network, it flips into hyperdrive. And so now all of a sudden the brain is screaming, everything's important. Hmm. But if we think about the salience network as sort of being your importance gauge, it's too low at baseline, meaning things aren't registering the way they should. And then when you actually do have to make a, a, a decision, it flips and now everything is super important. And again, you can't make the decision. That is so fascinating. What interesting research. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there is almost a disassociation with the condition of their home and then a hyper focus when it comes to making a decision with a, a certain item. Absolutely. And what happens is that that decision becomes so painful to the person that when left to their own devices, they avoid it. And that's huh. human nature. I mean, we all have a tendency to shy away from things that are uncomfortable. But if making things, if making decisions about your possessions is part of what's uncomfortable and you start avoiding that decision because you don't like the way it feels, you can do the math and realize that's going to add up to a big problem very quickly. Yeah. And there's different kinds of hoarding, which I didn't realize. People who have seen your show think of hoarding as old newspapers and trash. 
but there's also animal hoarding? There is, yeah. We don't know very much about animal hoarding. I mean, we know a little bit. But part of the reason that we don't know much is that, by and large, people with animal hoarding are not coming into our clinics and they are not coming into our research studies. So they're not coming in saying, scan my brain, you know, let me, let me teach you about my condition. And I think part of that is because in the case of animal hoarding, the insight can be so poor that the person doesn't even know they have a problem. In fact, I, I don't think I've ever come across somebody who described themselves as an animal hoarder. You know, almost to a person, they describe themselves as animal rescuers. And they believe that they are doing something noble. And they'll say, these, these animals are better off living with me than they are being euthanized in a shelter. Which would make sense if these animals weren't dying a slow and painful death in the person's home, which they are. And that's the piece that the person can't understand and can't recognize. So we don't even know, for example, whether animal hoarding is related to object hoarding, is that the same problem? Is it a variant of the same problem? Or is it something entirely different? We, we just don't know. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about this because I can tell from how you're wording things that you come from such like a research heavy perspective versus the average Joe or Jane would just be like, yeah, animal hoarding. It's, you know, it's in the bucket. <laughs> in your research and in your experience on some of the more extreme cases, yeah. what's been the, the most common form of hoarding that you have seen? And what's been the most extreme or unusual form? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, I think in terms of common, really what you see people by and large hoarding is the same stuff that you and I save. So if you go to your house right now and you find clutter, <laughs> and you probably will, just as I will. I'm laughing because I'm like, yep, seashells, all the seashells. <laughs> yeah, whatever your clutter is, somebody's probably got that in their hoard. You know, so, I mean, this, this definitely happens. Now, I think as you get up to more and more severe levels of hoarding disorder, you'll start seeing things like deceased pets or bodily fluid or toenail clippings. And we've certainly seen people who are doing that. Those patients probably have more of a bit, uh, more of a psychosis as part of their problem than other people do. So it, it really depends. And, and we don't know a great deal about the super, super extreme variants of this either, in part probably because as you get up into the super extreme variants, you get less and less insight and awareness. And so they're less and less likely to come say, you know, say, hey, come study me. Are there any digital presentations of hoarding? Sure, sure. So a lot of people have, have raised a question of digital hoarding and whether that's the same thing as object hoarding. The idea is some people never throw away their emails. Or they never throw away pictures on Google Photos, even though they've got a hundred of the same. <laughs> we don't know very much about that. Um, my hunch is that it probably has a lot of the same features as hoarding does, um, as object hoarding does, in the sense that, yeah, I just find it painful to throw away. I feel very attached to these things. And so I'm just not going to deal with it right now. I mean, and then that, that basic process is probably replicating in the digital and in the physical Right. How you do some things is how you do most things, as they say. Yeah. Good way of saying it. Yeah. You mentioned that self-awareness, identifying or not identifying as a hoarder. In your book, you talk about walking patients through their core beliefs that fuel the hoarding behaviors. And I was so struck by one particular woman that you shared about. She said, if I throw too much away, there will be nothing left of me. 
And you said she had what's called object identity fusion. And that just reading her statement, if I throw too much away, there won't be anything left of me. It just broke my heart. But I thought at the same time, wow, that is a highly self-aware person to be able to, in one sentence, identify and describe her whole reason for hoarding. How do you help patients get to a place where they're no longer disassociating and they can not only identify what's happening, the reality of it, but also verbalize it in such an articulate way? Yeah, a, a great question. And and to be honest, it takes an awful lot of back and forth discussion to get there. I mean, the, the patient that you're describing, it took a while to get to that state. She certainly did not walk in the, the door for her first session and say, this is my belief. Most people don't don't do that. And it's not because we're not aware of our beliefs. It's just that we haven't really thought of them. You know, so these beliefs aren't, they're not like repressed in the psychoanalytic sense, but they are not the kind of things that we're used to thinking about. But if you ask the person to reflect on, well, what do you really think about these things? Why do you suppose they are so important to you? That you start to get a sense of you know, what's, what's being linked to what. And in, in, in this particular case, you know, the patient was sort of saying, well, I feel like these things are an extension of myself. So that's, that's the foot in the door. And then if we crack that door open just a little bit more and ask, okay, well, what, what do you think it would mean if you got rid of these extensions of yourself? And then she says, well, then I guess I'd be getting rid of parts of me. And I take the next step we call this the downward arrow, by the way, taking the next step and asking, okay, well, if that were the case and you got rid of all these parts of you, what are you concerned about? And that's when she comes to the idea that, well, there would be nothing left. of And right there, we can kind of zero in on that and say, okay, that belief, I'm guessing, is driving a lot of this emotional and behavioral reaction. It's, it's that because when you and I are talking about some item, say a soda can or something like that, right? And we found a soda can in your kitchen and we're trying to decide whether to keep it or not. I, the therapist, I'm talking about a soda can. You're not. You're talking about your identity. No wonder we're not meeting in the middle. No wonder we are not seeing eye to eye on this. As therapists, we need to pop, you know, step back and we need to kind of look at things through the eyes of our patients to understand how they view things. And often what we find is that our patients are putting a lot of meaning onto their possessions and a lot of meaning onto their actions that you and I might not think to do. There was even, I'm going to struggle with this word, anthropomorphization. Pretty good. <laughs> oh, that was rough. Um, personifying objects to have human emotions. As soon as I read that, I did that as a child and I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I, I know what that feels like to to look at a teddy bear and go, oh, I haven't played with it for so long and now I'm going to give it away. That makes it feel bad. How how sad it must feel, you know? So there's these complicated emotions around objects that is, again, not just for the other people, but the psychology of our own stuff as, you know, everyone really. That's right. This is maybe a, a central theme of a lot of how I think about behavioral health which is that the things that we experience, even those things that seem really strange, are usually happening for quite logical and quite understandable reasons. Um, and and it's, it's not like there's some magic thing that happened that made you behave and think this way. It's no, actually, there are, 
very well-documented, very understandable psychological processes at play that just happen to combine in a really toxic way for you and, and cause the development of these symptoms. And anthropomorphism is a great example of that where, okay, probably all kids anthropomorphize some of the time. We, we think that our teddy bears have feelings. And okay, most of us grow out of that. And some of us don't. And understanding why that is and understanding how that continues to drive adult behavior is just fascinating. It is fascinating. You also noted in your book that many times hoarding behaviors are triggered from moments of grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of people who I think overdo the trauma angle. And they'll say, okay, so you're hoarding, you're engaging in this behavior. What trauma have you experienced that caused this? In my mind, I, I think that's a very oversimplified way of thinking. In many cases, there's no trauma at all. And certainly most people who are traumatized don't engage in this kind of behavior. So it's, it's oversimplified to just go, oh, trauma and that causes the hoarding. I mean, that, that's, that's not really how things work. What we find is that many of our patients scribe that stressful events were maybe not the cause of the hoarding behavior, but they certainly piled on and they certainly exacerbated the hoarding and one of the biggies that we see is grief. That feeling a sense of loss seems to probably not cause hoarding behavior, but drive up hoarding behavior. And, and you can easily make an argument for why that might be, that the person is trying to fill some sort of emotional void with stuff, even if they don't know that that's what they're doing. Or hold on to memories. And I mean, it seems it's so, so human. It's so human to want to not forget someone. I can really see how it would be helpful to have a person like you to just kind of navigate those feelings and help with those decisions. Talk to me about clutter and possessions as mood control, because I found that very interesting. All of us experience moods. All of us experience emotions, some of which we don't like. That's just human nature. Most of the time, we manage those feelings in a healthy and functional way. We refer to that as emotion regulation. And the idea is that when I'm feeling really angry or I'm feeling really sad or I'm feeling really scared, what do I do? Well, I probably take a couple breaths. I probably remind myself this isn't so bad. I probably get back and get busy with something else that's productive in my life and things kind of go on. But some people arrive at emotion regulation strategies that are not only maladaptive, but ultimately add more fuel to the emotional fire. So for example, I mean, let's just take uh, excessive drinking as an example. So some people might feel depressed and they say, you know what, I'm so depressed, I'm going to go out for a walk. And they're probably going to do fine. Some people say, I'm so depressed, I'm going to have a few drinks. That may not turn out so well. And the reason it may not turn out so well is, is A, it doesn't really resolve anything, but B, it feeds back into the problem. That is, we know that alcohol, for example, is a central nervous system depressant, and drinking a lot of it will probably exacerbate depression, which is why you were drinking in the first place. So we can sort of think about every person as having both good and bad emotion regulation strategies. And some people with hoarding disorder have found that stuff is an emotion regulation strategy. So let's take acquiring as an example. Some people might say, I'm so depressed or I'm so upset or I'm so angry. I'm going to go buy something to make myself feel better. Retail therapy. 
and you know that it probably serves its aim at least initially it gets them out of that bad mood and makes them feel good but ultimately of course it just brings more clutter into the home gives them more feel more to feel discouraged about and adds to the issue so a big piece of what i'm always trying to do with patients is help them not add to the issue like don't don't pile onto this problem by creating more of the problem let's if you need to regulate your emotions, let's do it in a healthy way that's actually functional. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. It's that time of year for front porch pumpkins and football barbecues. But here in the southern U.S., mosquitoes can still be an unwanted part of the equation. I've been using Insects Mosquito Service since 2019, and I love that they guarantee their work. And pollinators are always top of mind. Don't wait to get on their schedule. If you're in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give Insect a call, ensec.net. Don't pick another boring venue for your next work event. Check out one of the Pensacola Historic Trust 12 museums. If you watch the show on YouTube, you see the beautiful backdrop of Trader John's, the exhibit where I record the show inside the Pensacola Museum of History. Booking an event with the Trust will not just be memorable for your guests, it will support the efforts to keep Pensacola's historic charm preserved. And if you're planning a trip here and need an indoor activity option, pick up a ticket in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Learn more at historicpensacola.org. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. You also talk in the book about bound, like a compassion, obviously, but boundaries a little bit. How can a loved one, someone with a loved one who's struggling with hoarding behaviors, how can they maintain compassion while also setting boundaries? For example, you know, you have a relative who hoards so much that their home isn't really safe for your child to go visit and say it's like a parent. Or another example might be uh, a relative continuously acquires, since we're talking about retail therapy, but then asks for help with their bills. How do you strike that balance between compassion and setting boundaries? Yeah. How do you not enable? Right. Exactly. That's the thing. The tricky piece is to realize, A, this person is suffering. So at at the core, at its core, this is my loved one who is suffering and they need my support and they need my love. At the same time, This person's behavior is out of control, and I don't want their behavior to spiral any further out of control, so I'm not going to assist them in that process. I'm going to come up with better ways of supporting them. So I always encourage, you know, families to talk to their loved one, you know, and sometimes they do this with the therapist in the room, and they say, how can we help support you? What, you know, what what do you need from us? Understanding that we're not going to get you stuff, and we're not going to contribute to the clutter. But we understand that you're emotionally hurting and that there's something that you need. Let, let's talk about how we as a family can come together and get you what you need in a way that doesn't hurt you. And how does that go normally? Because I'm imagining somebody without uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The inner knowing of being able to articulate, well, I need a way to memorialize my deceased husband. 
Yeah. For example, like they might not even be there. So how do you how do you even have that conversation when the person isn't self-identifying, isn't self-aware, can't articulate what they even need? I would say incrementally. Most of the good stuff that happens in therapy is actually the end product of lots and lots of conversations, you know, and and unfortunately, I, I will say, I mean, you can watch some of this stuff on TV, but it's also edited down that it yeah. looks like all it took was for the therapist <laughs> to say one great singer and the patient's eyes open and they went, wow, when in reality, no, that was actually the cumulative result of three days of, of, of conversations to talk to that patient. And that's just sort of the moment that it, it got through. So, you know, when, whenever the family is talking with a person with hoarding disorder, my, my encouragement is don't put all your eggs in one basket of this is, this is the session that's got to fix everything. Realize that, that overcoming a, a significant behavioral issue takes time and it takes repetition. And it's probably a conversation we're going to have to have over and over and over again when the hope is that each time we just get a little bit closer and closer and closer to the mark. How can we stay anchored in reality when it comes to the psychology of our possessions? What are some helpful tools? You mentioned the downward arrow. Maybe you have some others for people maybe not uh, not in the spectrum of hoarding disorder, let's say. But as you stated, we all have these behaviors of emotional attachment because we're emotional. We're human, right? We're emotional beings. So we, we, we don't just buy things out of practicality all the time. Sometimes we buy things to feel good. Sometimes we keep things to feel good. How can we stay anchored in reality and not get it to a place where it's the danger zone? Part of what I often encourage people with hoarding disorder to do is to ask themselves some challenging questions about any object that they're thinking about bringing into the home or any object that they're thinking about saving versus discarding. And those are very simple questions like, do I really need this? If I didn't have it, what would happen? Am I hanging on to this for practical reasons or is this just emotional reasons? And ultimately, of course, what's really best for me, given what I'm trying to achieve in the world and what I'm trying to accomplish in life, is saving this or discarding this going to be in my best interest? Now, what we see is that when a therapist bombards you with those questions, it actually has the opposite effect, that it actually makes the person push back and, and believe even stronger. They double down on this belief that, oh, no, I got to have this. But if it can come from within, if you can get the person to have an inner dialogue and really think about, is this really what I need? Is this really going to be functional for me? Is this going to make my life better? Or is this just serving some immediate emotional need? That's probably, well, I think, one of the best ways that we, that we help people get away from these really toxic patterns that they find themselves in. To really ask the questions them, yeah. themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you give an example of somebody who successfully overcame hoarding disorder? Well, there's, there's several. But I, I also want to be very careful in not overselling the treatment. Because here's what we know. We know that, that the treatment, cognitive behavior therapy, is effective for the vast majority of people who receive it. So that's the good news. The not-so-good news is that only a very small minority of people actually remit. And by remit, what I mean is they're no longer, they no longer have hoarding disorder. So even under really good circumstances when we treat somebody, what we find is that at the end of the therapy, they still have hoarding disorder. 
they just have a better managed version of hoarding disorder and they're more functional and they're safer and their quality of life is better. But we have lots of people who are like that that come through our programs all the time who, who you know, have really kind of worked. They had to develop a certain awareness, a certain insight into the problem. They had to understand that their behavior was problematic. That was probably item number one. Item number two, they had to be sufficiently motivated to do something about it. So we had to work with them on understanding why is this an issue? Why should we care? Why shouldn't we just leave this alone? And, you know, helping the person to kind of understand how it was affecting their life. And then we really worked on having them challenge themselves, asking some of those tricky questions like, is this really serving a function? You know, is this actually going to make my life better? Or is this just me trying to feel better in the moment? And we've also worked on having the person practice effective emotion regulation skills, going back to that term that I used before, learning how to just cope with unpleasant emotions. So let's acknowledge the fact that for you, putting something in the garbage can actually feels bad. Let's quantify how bad it feels. Let's articulate it and say what it feels like. And then let's have you practice kind of tolerating that and managing it and dealing with it rather than caving in and just trying to resolve it and make it feel better all at once. And, and you know, what we find is that over a course of, of therapy, and, and for that we're probably talking four months or so, that the person can get themselves into a much more functional place. You talked in your book about exposure therapy. That reminds me of that when you're talking about tolerating sitting with those emotions of feeling bad about the object being in the trash can. You talked about, you know, going to a place that would be triggering for acquiring. I don't know why, but I was like, oh yeah, so like TJ Maxx, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> obviously, as one does. And yeah. and going through, you know, the clearance section and um and seeing the things on sale. Uh, you know what? I imagine there's a digital version of this. Seeing oh, sure. the emails like, oh, must sale ends in, in two days, you know, and tolerating those emotions and yet not impulsively acting on them. I found that really interesting. Um, your book had so many, well, it was like a workbook. You, you talk about the pr presentations of hoarding disorder. You had messages to the family. And then for anybody that struggles with it, I, I really recommend it because there was these pages of where you could write in the book and work through your own uh, psychology of your own possessions, your psychology of your own stuff. So I loved that. My final question for you is, has all of your work with people with hoarding disorder changed your relationship with your stuff? Oh, great question. Well, I still like stuff and I still have my toys that I like. Um, I, I will say I'm a little bit more thoughtful about what I hang on to. Um, I'm a little less likely to hang on to stuff that doesn't really serve a practical need. And I'm a little bit more willing to let go. Now, sometimes that means throwing away, but also probably, I think I'm probably doing a lot more recycling, a lot more donating than I might have otherwise. Because I'm realizing this object is just taking up space in my home and it's not really making my life any better. I love that. Tell people where they can find you on your website, and you have many books, not just this one, but where they can kind of engage with the resources that you have to offer. Sure. Well, the book is, is Buried in Treasures, which you can get on Amazon or at Oxford University Press, and then I'm also at drtolan.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you, Meredith. 
Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did solo sharing my own mental health hacks that work for me. That's episode 63. And you know, they say word of mouth is still the best way to grow a podcast. So since you made it this far, now's a great time to take a screenshot and share about it on social media. Be sure to tag me. I'm at Meredith for real. Stay tuned next week for a remastered episode with an American woman who escaped a forced marriage. 